Thankful to be with you on this Sunday, May 1st. Does anybody have a hard time believing today is May 1st? <clears throat> was it last Wednesday, February? Well, congratulations to the high school graduates. We have some college graduates as well, so congratulations to you. Hopefully you're not like me and stretch four years into six and a half. But I made it out with a few loans, but today's a special day. Um, I want to introduce myself just one more time. My name is Corey Perkins. I have the opportunity to serve young adults and young families. So I get to encourage and lead and pray for and serve people from 18 to 40. Yes, if you're 40, I just lumped you into young adults. Um, I can make fun because I'm in that age group. But I, let me just be honest, be transparent. I love, I love serving in this body. I love this church. God brought us here four years ago in a season when our family needed a loving community of believers, and you guys have been that and more, so thank you for that. It's a great place to be. I want to highlight a few wins uh, in ministry because God's hand is on this place. If you didn't know that, God's provision is on this church, and he's working in a mighty way. And I want to highlight a few of those things because it's exciting to be part of a church body that's growing, that's thriving, and that's following Jesus. Uh, people are coming to the, the knowledge of the gospel on a weekly basis. Just a few weeks ago in this room, the student ministry, which is amazing, by the way, if you didn't know that, um, 72 teenagers gave their life to Christ right here in this room. Follow, it's okay to clap. Yeah. On that same night, across the parking lot in the crossing, which is the building right over to our left, uh, 250 elementary students heard the gospel. 13 gave their life to Christ that night as well. Um, we've got people being baptized. We've got people going on missions. We have new faces every Sunday, which is amazing. Uh, if you're a guest today, and this is your first time, we've been anticipating your presence. We've been praying for you. We're excited you're here. This is a great place to be. And I know it sounds boastful, like, well, you work here. You should be saying those things. It's not about us at all. It's about what God's doing and I just want to claim 1 Corinthians 1.31 where Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is at work at this place and it's exciting to be a part of that. So we're going to continue our Mark series. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 20. But before we get into that passage, you can go ahead and turn there and bring up that on your device. Before we get into that passage, let's go back and set up the context of what's going on. So the verses leading up to verse 20, Pastor David talked about this last week. Jesus picks his team. He assembles his team of apostles together. He gathers them together and they go up on a mountainside to have kind of a men's retreat to get them ready for the ministry that's going to happen, right? Now we know, we can imagine that the disciples at this time did not fully understand what they were getting into, right? He was preparing them for three years of ministry and then preparing them for when he left this earth for the Great Commission, so they're new, they're fresh, they're green. They don't know the depths of what is going to happen in their life. Now think about you and me. When God calls us to do things, sometimes it's scary. And if he were to show you what he was going to do in your life two years from now, it may scare you to the point you may not do it. So he doesn't always show us ahead, but he gives us clarity for the day. So the disciples are gathered together to do ministry. And that's where we end up in verse 20. So we'll read together verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. 
We don't know whose house. This is taking place in Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Could be Peter's house. He was a fisherman. But the important thing to know is there is a crowd gathering. That word gathered means it's not stopping. There are people coming from everywhere. They're relentless. Thousands upon thousands of people are descending upon this town. And the disciples and Jesus are doing so much ministry, they're exhausted. They don't even have time to eat. I don't know about you, when I'm busy and tired, I find time to eat. But they are so busy loving and showing compassion to people that they don't have time to eat. They're exhausted. Can we just make a point here? Living a gospel-centered life can be exhausting. When you chase after the gospel, it can be exhausting because we've got to know as believers, the gospel requires something of you and me. It's not just a one-time decision. We come and we give our life to Christ, which that's important. That's the most important thing. But as a believer, it doesn't stop there. Somehow in the church, we've whittled the gospel down to this one thing about salvation. When the gospel is everything you do, you see life through a gospel lens. It's exhausting. And as we follow Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we follow the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. When you follow that timeline of ministry, you see over and over and over and over again that Jesus found himself in these situations, right? Where he's pouring himself out, where he's exhausted from doing ministry. And he was very intentional about surrounding himself with people that were considered outcasts. And we can imagine this demon-possessed guy we're going to talk about here in a minute was an outcast. So let's find out why the crowds are gathering. I want to know why. Mark doesn't talk about why. Here's why the crowds are gathering. We have to go to a parallel passage in the Bible, Matthew 12, 22, and that's just a different area of the Bible that describes the same event. Here's why the crowds are gathering. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So Jesus cast out the demon, and he got his voice and his sight back. That's why the crowds are gathering. People are bringing their sick. They're bringing their demon-possessed friends. That's crazy. They're bringing the blind. And some people are just coming because they want to see what's going on. Word got out. There's no YouTube. There's no TikTok. Thank you, Jesus. There's none of that. They've got to see it with their own eyes. So they descend upon this town to see what Jesus is doing. The gospel is exhausting. The gospel is messy. It requires something from you and me. Jesus found himself in these positions of compassion all the time. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Corey, I'm just trying to get through life. Like, I don't have it all together. What do I have to offer someone that's in need? Well, here's what you have to offer. You have God's word. You have your testimony. You have the gospel. You have the love of Jesus Christ. All God needs you to do is to be available. And you let him do the rest. Right? The gospel is messy and it requires something of you and something of me. I came across this phrase when I was studying for this message. I love it. I love it. I love it. Never settle for a version of the gospel that does not require risk. I'll say that one more time. Never settle for a version of the gospel that does not require risk. The gospel is risky. The gospel took Jesus to the cross. It's not safe. We've made it safe. Jesus died on the cross because of the gospel. 
It takes a small risk to invite someone to church, right? It's risky. There's a little risk involved when you share your testimony with someone. There's risk involved when you go on a mission trip. There's risk involved if God calls you to, to be a foster parent. The gospel's not safe. We've made it safe. It's risky. It's messy. It's exhausting. I heard a story of a young lady who got a new job. And on her job, she was very discouraged because there weren't a lot of Christians. So she set up a meeting with her pastor. She wanted prayer. She wanted advice. She wanted wisdom. So she shared with her pastor, I just, I'm discouraged at my job. It's very negative. Not a lot of believers. No one wants to come to church with me. What should I do? Pastor pauses. Where do they put lights? She's, what are you, what are you talking about? Pastor, listen, I'm very discouraged. I need prayer. I need advice. Show me some scriptures. Should I leave my job? What should I do? He said, where do they put lights? She's frustrated at this point. She said, in dark places. Got it. God has you on your job to be the light of the world, to be the gospel right where you're at. The gospel requires something of you and me. God calls us to be the light of the world. We're on mission. Guys, can you bring that picture up? We have these signs on the exit when you leave the campus. And i got to be totally honest with you. I'm here five days a week, and many times I don't even see that. I'm so callous and so comfortable and so used to being here that I drive right by that sign, and it doesn't have any impact on me. we got to realize when we leave this place or when we're anywhere, that's the mission field. We're taking the gospel to people that are lost. Are there lost people in East Texas? Or are they just in other countries? You got a lot here. You're on mission. You don't have to get in a plane and go overseas to be on mission. The gospel requires us to be the light as we're going. So we see that they're, they're tired, they're hungry. Verse 21, read with me. When his family heard about this, Let's stop there. His family was in Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth. They're in Capernaum. Nazareth, the southwest of that. It's about a day's trip. So his family hears about what's going on. That's good news. They're going to come and, they're going to come and help out. They're going to bring some water. They're going to help him delegate ministry. They're going to come encourage him. Let him take some rest. He's hungry. Like if I was in that position, I'd want like a, like a number one from Chick-fil-A with a large sweet tea. Like bring me that. They do none of that. Look what they do. They went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. His family scored really high on the LifeWay spiritual gifts test on encouragement. <laughs> Anybody have family? like? Don't raise your hand. Sit next to you. Um, they weren't encouraging at all. They said, and this is literally, they said he's crazy. It can be translated, he's not in his right mind. He's beside himself. He's having an out-of-body experience. He's being irrational. It says they came to take charge of him. That phrase, take charge of him, is the same phrase used later in Mark when the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Same phrase. Pretty violent. So his family is using the same phrase 
to describe what the Roman guards did to him. So they came to arrest him, to scoop him up, to remove him from the situation before he can do anything else that's crazy. We don't want him to embarrass the family name anymore. We know they loved him. Maybe they're removing him and taking him back home before the religious leaders can come and drop a hammer on Jesus. They didn't believe. His family didn't believe outside of Mary. In fact, the Bible says in John 7, 5, not even his brothers believed. They lived with him for 30 years. Now, Jesus didn't fully disclose who he was. You know, he was a carpenter. He didn't just abracadabra, here's a table. Like, use his power that way. So they didn't, they didn't really know. They were ignorant to the fact, but they didn't believe. In fact, most people in that time did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. There's not one human testimony up to Mark 3 of someone saying, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Not one. You can go back to Mark chapter 1, and there's a demon that testifies. A demon says, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. What do you want with us? And he cast him out. So only a demon testified. Even his disciples didn't really believe fully. Listen, as you're following God, you may be questioned, misunderstood, or even criticized by people that are close to you or even family. And those criticisms could be indicators that you're on the right path. Now, do you go through life looking for criticism, doing things? No, don't do that. But as you're following God with your life, if you get some criticisms, if you get some questions, that might be an indicator you're right where you need to be. When I was 19, I surrendered to ministry. Didn't know what that really was, didn't know what it looked like. I just knew God was calling me for vocational ministry. Had a desire to work at the local church. Enrolled at ETBU to pursue a religion degree. In that time, met my wife and was planning to get married at some point in those six, seven years. Um, just kidding, only four. But I remember telling my dad about this, like, I'm, I want to work at a church, I want to go to ministry, we're getting married. And I got to tell you, my dad wasn't, wasn't a believer. He left our family when I was around four years old to chase drugs and alcohol and all that comes with that. And I only saw him in church one time, and it was at my wedding, and I remember standing at the altar with my pastor, Brother Steve Cochran, and he said, all rise. You know, it's game time at that point. The doors open up. My bride's coming down, and, man, I lose it. I'm not, I'm not too proud to say I cried like a baby at my wedding. Any guys willing to admit just me? Okay. You did? If you want a great marriage, cry at your wedding. I don't know if that's <laughs> biblical. I mean, I had no control of my tear ducts. It was just like Niagara Falls. And um, she's, my bride Melinda's walking down the aisle. And as the doors start to close, there's probably 10 inches. And I see my dad slipping. He's late to, to the wedding. And that just kind of summed up where he was at. And I say all that to paint a picture for you. When I told him I was getting married and going into ministry and wanted to work at a church, his response was, is that really a job? Isn't that just a hobby? Isn't that something you just do on the side. Can you really support a family doing that? Like he wasn't supportive at all and I didn't expect him to be. I wasn't looking for him to be an example in my life because I knew he wasn't. But even that misunderstanding, that little bit of criticism was, was tough to swallow. As you follow Jesus, there's misunderstandings along the way, but those don't define your mission. Jesus wasn't worried about his family saying that about him because he knew why he was here on earth. Good news is later, 
We see later his family came to know and worship him as God in the upper room. No doubt. Misunderstandings will happen. So his family called him crazy, but the religious leaders escalated the situation to a code red level. Here's what they said. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So his family said he was crazy, but the religious leaders at that time said, he's a demon. Like they took it way too far. So here's what happened. The the word about Jesus had made its way to Jerusalem, kind of the hub of the faith at the time. And the bigwigs, the elite, decide to send a group down to Capernaum to kind of spread some misinformation, some fake news, if you will, about who Jesus is. Because they were jealous. He was a threat to their, to their power. Like He could do things and he could gather crowds like they could only dream of because they couldn't do what he could do. And they could not deny his authority. Thousands of people had been there under his teaching. They've seen him heal paralyzed man and a demon-possessed man. They couldn't say he's, he doesn't have power. So what do you do if you want to discredit someone that says they're from God? You say, they're not from God, they're from the devil. So they attacked him and tried to discredit his identity. They said, not only are you the, a demon, you're the Beelzebub, you're the prince of demons. Beelzebub was the god of destruction. It was the god of sewage and decay and death, also known as the lord of the flies, because where do you find flies? Over death, decay, and sewage and garbage. So that's what they called him. They attacked his identity. And let me just, let's just hammer down a teaching point here. God is still, not God, Satan is still in the business of attacking your identity as a believer. It started in the Garden of Eden. What does he do? He, he encourages us to doubt who God is, right? Did God really say you can't do that? To doubt what God says about us, and then we doubt who we are in Christ. He attacks us all the time. We must be secure in who we are in Christ, not insecure. I talk to people from time to time about coming to church and people in and out of church. And what I get a lot is, well, I, I just can't go to Mobley. There's it's a lot of great people there. And I, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know I, don't, I won't fit in. Can't we just clear the record and acknowledge that Mobley is a group of broken people that have made mistakes before? Can we say that? Like, we've made mistakes, we've messed up, we're not perfect, we don't boast in that, we boast in God's grace, we boast in the cross, but we can acknowledge that we are a group of people that don't have it together, so if you say that, if Satan throws that in your face, well, I can't go to Molly because, yes, you can, you'll fit right in. You're going to fit right in perfectly with us, because no one's got it together at this church. They attacked his identity try to discredit who he was. Parents want to talk to you this graduate day. Great, it's amazing. Parents, your highest calling is not to raise a super athlete. I love sports, don't get me wrong. I spent the better part of yesterday at a track meet. I've had great coaches, taught me a lot. Your and my greatest calling as a parent is not to raise amazing athletes. It's not to raise children that make the best grades. Oh, that sounds crazy. Your highest calling is to remind your children 
over and over again who they are in Christ? Are you speaking life into their identity and who God calls them to be? Fathers, you gotta, you gotta do that. Dads, you gotta do that. I know you're tired when you get home from church. You don't have a lot of words. You don't know what to say. Speak into who God has called them to be because no, be clear, Satan is coming after your kids. Well, that's dramatic. That's scripture. Be clear. Satan wants to destroy the work of God in your children. What do I say? Glad you asked. Here's some scripture. For all of us, when we feel insecure, when you don't feel adequate, Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece. When you regret your past mistakes, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation in Christ. When you struggle with value, Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. When you feel like God's given up with, on you, Hebrews 13.5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Speak life into your kids. Why is identity so important? Burn this into your brain. Identity affects activity. You make choices based on your identity. When you're secure in Christ, you don't care who knows you're a Christian. You follow the Bible like crazy because you're secure in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The voice you listen to will determine the future you experience. So we see that they called him a, a, a demon. Let's see his reaction. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. I love that. He's like, hey, guys, I know you just called me Satan. Come here. Let's have a meeting. Gather up. We're going to talk. And he asked this question. He's like, hey, let me ask a crazy question. I know this is a crazy question, but you guys get together and, and give me an answer. How can Satan drive out Satan? I know it's a crazy question. Why would Satan want to cast out Satan? Why would he want to lessen the effect he has on this earth because he wants to destroy this earth? Why would he pull back the reins? I know it's crazy. Then he goes on to make three statements. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Very basic. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. He's like, guys, this is not rocket science. Why would Satan go against Satan? And then he wraps it up in this picture. I love this. This is the parable. Verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Satan is the strong man. His house is this earth. I'm the stronger man. Who's stronger than Satan? God. I have come to defeat Satan because I'm stronger and release all the possessions, take all the possessions back, which are you and me. He set us free. That's good news. He set us free. It says, then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus came to set us free. I'm the stronger man. Makes a lot of sense. Then he drops this truth bomb on them, and then we'll close this out. He says this, verse 28. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven for all their sins and every slander they utter, but whatever, whoever blasphemes me against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's huge. You read that, and you're like, 
that goes against the very character of who Jesus is. He came to forgive all of us. He's saying there's a sin that can't be forgiven. Well, the Pharisees had rejected Jesus, rejected his forgiveness, said he was the devil, right? So what is blasphemy? It is when you get to a point in your life where you don't need God's forgiveness. You turn your back on the gospel. You turn your back on the Holy Spirit. You don't need forgiveness. How can God forgive someone who doesn't want forgiveness? I've heard it said that this statement is frightening to the comfortable, the statement about blasphemy, and it's comfortable to the frightening. It's frightening because if you're comfortable in your sin, you don't need a Savior. But if you're frightened when you read this verse, if you're still being convicted by the Holy Spirit, (coughs) you haven't committed blasphemy. It is, John Piper says it this way, a state of willful, determined opposition to the power of the Holy Spirit. You tell the Holy Spirit, no, I don't need you, I don't need forgiveness, I don't, no, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. So today as we close, what is your response to the gospel? I was sharing about my dad earlier. His response was no response, which is a rejection of the gospel. About 15 years ago, he was driving from Gilmer to Gladewater. And he's driving a little Yugo. You younger people don't know what a Yugo is. It's a small car you don't want to have. And he was stopped behind a bus over a hill. It's foggy. An older couple comes over the hill with the cruise control set on 70 and went right through that Yugo, and he passed away. And I don't say that to scare anybody here. Fear doesn't drive you to the gospel. And all of us know that death is certain. I say that because his response to the gospel was no response, which is rejection. Where are you at today? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you confessed, like Romans says, confessed and believed? It's not just going to church, singing a few songs. It's giving your life to Christ, being desperate for a Savior. So the invitation is twofold today. Maybe you're not living a gospel-centered life right now. You're not looking for opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You're not looking for people that need hope and healing because maybe you're apathetic, maybe you're callous, maybe you're busy. And maybe you just need to repent and say, God, forgive me. I want to I be your hands and feet. I want to make a difference. I want to be the light. Go to God sincerely today and ask for forgiveness. And maybe you've never given your life to Christ. We're going to sing a song. Nate, come on up. We're going to sing a song together. As you go out to the left, we've got ministers that want to pray with you, that want to answer questions you have about being saved, about the church, about um, serving, all of that. I'll be here if you want to talk to me as well. But if God's calling you to make a decision, do not quench the spirit in that area. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the fact that you came, tied up the strong man, plundered his home, and set us free. God, I pray for anyone struggling with self-doubt, insecurity, anxiety, in who they are, struggling with who they are, in you, with their identity. God, I pray that they would go to your word and saturate their self in your word and your promises. God, help us to live an on-mission lifestyle. God, give us an urgency to reach people 
daily. God, I pray for families. This morning, God, I pray you would fortify families in this place. You would help, help dads speak life into their kids, strengthen marriages. Pray for these graduates that are ready to, to go out into the world, protect them as they go. Keep them close to you, God. You know, we pray, amen.